You may remain standing now as you read the word of the Lord. We're in the book of 1 Peter still, and we move to chapter 5 and verse 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peter writing to the Christians throughout that ancient world in this letter exhorts us to many things. He's dealing overall with suffering. God's people suffer. And his exhortation generally and repeatedly is that we be subject. He calls us to be subject to the civil government the ordained authority of God over us. He calls upon wives to be subject to their husbands. He calls upon servants to be subject to their masters. And he has just talked about the elder, which we looked at last week, something about the office of elder as we ordained and installed our officers last week. And the very next thing he mentions is the younger. He says, you younger be subject to the elders. It's an interesting word that's used to identify these younger. It's a word that has neo in front of it, but it's not neophyte. It's a word that means those who are new fresh, kind of raw, inexperienced, to some extent perhaps incompetent. And it even moves in its nuance, in its root meaning to insolent, arrogant, rebellious, younger. It has a moral connotation to it. It's not just fewer years, a younger person biologically, but it is someone who is not quite spiritually mature and developed to where they need to be. One of the curses upon a people and upon Israel in the ancient world was that they would be led by children, by young men, men who were immature, men who were not all that they should be by way of experience, and men who were often arrogant. The greatest example of this in the Old Testament is the lineage of King David. King David started his ministry and his generation and sat upon the throne of Israel and ruled both Judah and Israel for a total of 40 years. 
It was a strong leadership. Israel became a powerful nation. Under his son Solomon, who also reigned over God's people for 40 years, the nation became a prosperous and a wealthy nation. But then King Solomon's son stepped forward, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was young. He was sure of himself. His dad had been king all of his life. That All he can remember was his dad in this place of preeminence. In fact, ancient history shows that probably in the days of King Solomon, Israel was the greatest nation on earth. Assyria, Egypt, some of the other countries were in a state of decline during those years. And Israel dominated and the borders of Israel went from the Euphrates River all the way down to the Nile River across the Fertile Crescent. The greatest expansion that Israel had ever seen before or since. And it fulfilled the prophecy that God had made to Abraham that he would give him that land. So Rehoboam came to power in the middle of an apex of prosperity and power that was unknown to the nation of Israel. And Rehoboam felt like he had it all going. He felt like he was the man of the hour. And some of the older men complained a little bit about Rehoboam's years because of the confiscation and the recruitment and the taxation and the confiscation that the king naturally would take upon the people, high taxes and conscription of the young men and all the things that were happening. And they reminded him of his wise father Solomon who had not oppressed the people like this but allowed the people the freedom to prosper and had been very prudent in his leadership. And Rehoboam talked about my father taxed you. I'm going to put a tax on you. There will be the comparison between the thigh bone and the little finger. My taxes will bring you in line, will help you acknowledge where you ought to be. And there was an arrogance and there was a uh, insolence and a pride to the reign of King Rehoboam. And you know what happened? The kingdom split. There came a man who was as totally illegitimate, literally, as you could be, not only personally, but in terms of the house of David. He was an alien and a stranger. But yet he was popular with the people. And before it was over, Jeroboam I had split Israel into 10 tribes versus two tribes. And Israel stayed divided the rest of the way through. Great calamity had come upon it. Now, years later, during the reign of later Davidic kings in Judah, the prophet Isaiah 
warns about a coming judgment. It didn't come when Isaiah prophesied it. It came later, a few generations later, actually. But he prophesies terrible things that will happen to Israel if they walk their own way, if they ignore God, if they don't submit themselves to the Lord and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth and all of those things that they were supposed to keep the commandments of God, there would be judgment upon them. And he talks about all the things that happened, how the Lord would take away from Jerusalem and Judah the support and the supply, the support of bread, the support of water, the mighty men, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, the skilled, all of these that are experts in leadership and what they do. And God would remove these elders and notice the judgment. Verse four, I will make boys your princes and infants shall rule over you. And then the next verse, the youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. The youth will be insolent to the elder. Peter had learned well the economy, the management of the household of God, the leadership of God's people. And while in the first part that we saw last week, he emphasizes the elder, he now admonishes Still using the tone of the imperative, he admonishes the young, the fresh, the new, perhaps new converts, perhaps young men that have been raised in, in, in families, perhaps uh, that had believers predominant in them. But this audience is to this younger group that tend to be arrogant, insolent, prideful, that tend to know a better way, that tend to look to their fathers and their older brothers and their grandfathers and say, well, those old fogies just don't know what they're doing. We shall step forward. And this is a very early but important admonition to God's people. And that is to tell these younger men in the church to subject themselves to the elders. That's the way you have wise leadership and generational harmony within the fellowship of the Lord. Is for the younger men who might tend to be prideful and arrogant and have a little bit of an attitude to be wise enough and to hear the admonition of the Lord to humble themselves before the age and the wisdom and the leadership of the elders of the church. And he says to them, clothe yourselves, all of you, so this admonition goes beyond just this one targeted group, but it goes to the whole group. 
all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. There is a very full description of this particular admonition, and we looked at it about seven years ago in a sermon here. And I listened to that sermon this morning, and it was uh, arresting to me. It sounded like somebody else preaching. It didn't sound like me at all. I I thank the Lord for (laughs) the admonition that comes from my own looking in the mirror. (laughs) But here's the, the, the uh, passage that we read this morning in our confession was Philippians 2, where it talks about the Lord uh, humbling himself and becoming man, becoming human, and all that's entailed in that humility and humiliation. But then he went beyond that. He, he became not just a man, but a servant man. And not just a man and not just a servant man, but a obedient man. And not just a man and a servant man, an obedient man, but a dying, sacrificing of himself man. And that's really the stages of humility that the Lord calls us to as well. He calls us to humble ourselves to divest ourselves of our prerogatives and our rights. Most of the time when we feel humiliated or we feel is because we've been slighted or we've been overlooked or we have been mistreated or we have been underappreciated or maybe even abused and put upon and overworked. Well, that's how you know you're a servant is when they treat you like one. But that's our calling in our relationship to each other, is to be willing to serve one another and to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what Jesus did. It's a whole different perspective than the world gives. I remember a few years ago when I was in business for myself and running a little company, I called upon uh, uh, apartment complexes in order to get the contracts to do their swimming pool service. And um, a lot of those apartment complexes were managed by young women, very bright and usually attractive and very uh, skilled young women, women in their 30s and 40s. And as I called them, I noticed they would you know, look at me standing there in my khakis and and uh, having some chlorine smell on me, you know, they they would always sort of look down their nose at me and I could tell that I was treated, uh, you know, just like I was a a hired hand and often would talk down and feel like they needed to to be rough with me. And I found out that most of these young women in real estate management had gone to what was called assertiveness training. Yeah, they had gone to school, had taken courses in how to not put up with anything from these... uh, servicemen, these, these uh, maintenance men and landscapers and pool service people and painters and carpenters. And co- so they would, they would put up this, this tough, tough front to make sure I understood who was the boss. And uh, it was a good lesson. 
It's a very, very good training. Good training for the ministry (laughs) is to recognize who you are. And to do as Paul admonishes in Romans 12, to not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think and adopt instead the attitude of a servant. That's what the passage meant when we started. It said, how this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. How he humbled himself. But notice the admonition that's given as Paul pleads for unity and for um, Humility at the very beginning of that chapter in Philippians 2. So as sure as there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and by the way, those three phases are kind of a, three phrases are a triune explanation. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, the Father, and participation in the Spirit the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, any affection and sympathy. Look at these words, affection, doing it out of love, humbly serving, but serving because you love. That's the way a mother is with a child, a nurse with a baby. It's regardless of how distasteful and repulsive the task may be, the love overrides everything, the affection or no matter how needy a person may be in dealing with them. And the the sympathy motivates, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. And by the way, he's mentioned earlier in this passage in Philippians that there were some preachers out there that were preaching just out there trying to out-preach Paul. (laughs) And uh, Paul said, well, it's not really a good motive, but at least they're preaching the gospel. (laughs) And so I'm thankful for that much. But he knew their motives were not pure. Not from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Notice he didn't tell us to count others more intelligent than ourselves or more competent than ourselves are more deserving, but more significant. Have a large view of those others that we will serve more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's really it. Humility is tied to the capacity to serve. Jesus' disciples, especially the, th- the sons of thunder, uh, James and John, got into an argument one time. You recall the story. It's, it's an amusing story. It's a delightful story, actually. And they got into an argument about who was going to be the more dominant one in the kingdom of Christ. And the good news is these guys didn't know Christ was a king and that Christ was going to form a kingdom. So they argued about who was going to sit on the left, who was going to sit on the right, who was going to be And the Lord told them in admonishing them that that's not the way his kingdom is. Christ was born in a stable, not in a palace. He rode on a little lowly donkey, not on a big white mule like the king typically rode upon. His kingdom is real. His kingdom is 
powerful and wonderful. But it's not going to be built from the top down. It's going to be built from the bottom up. And who can descend into the greater depths of humility will be the one who will rise to the highest heights of leadership. And who but Christ descended to the lowest depths of humility, laying aside his divine prerogatives, leaving the splendor of glory, taking on humanity, becoming fully human in every way and no less divine, and yet becoming a humble man, a lowly man, the circumstances of his birth, the story of his life, learning obedience himself through the things that he suffered. And then eventually bearing the shame, bearing the sin of his people, taking that to a cross. One of the principal things about crucifixion was it was a humiliating way to die. They stretched you high, they lifted you up, and you were naked. And not only that, there was always some reason to despise you. The crucified person was not just an executed person, it was a spectacle. It was a publicly humiliated person. And Christ endured that, being crucified right there just like a common criminal right in the middle of two common criminals. Humiliation. Being taken down and put in the heart of the earth, in the grave, in the tomb, all the way down. Who has gone lower? Who has been more humiliated? Who has suffered more in the Christian experience of, than Christ himself? Peter tells us two things. He said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't you want grace in your life? Haven't you been the recipient of grace so far? You know, he giveth more grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Don't you want that grace in your life? That's where it comes from. It comes from a pride resisting God with one hand holding back the sinister effects of pride upon our lives and with the other hand bestowing grace, giving grace, grace to put up with whatever, grace to do, grace to endure, grace to live, grace to shed and spread to others. And then the second thing he says is, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. If you've known grace in your life, you've also known some exaltation. Just like when Jesus reached the lowest point of his humility, God raised him up. And so it is in our lives. God has raised us from death to life. He has made us sit in heavenly places.